hey, welcome everybody to the Backyard Professor Sunday Night Firesides. I am the Backyard Professor. We are going to have some fun stuff tonight. Let me see if I can get this arranged a little better. I have some fun stuff to share with you from Paul Osborne. I want to share some information that he had on the facsimiles and some of his responses to the apologists and their shenanigans, which is worth reading because Paul takes no sass. He simply goes for the gold. Yeah. All right. I hope everyone's had a good week. I have had a terrific week here. Uh, I have been preparing like crazy for Tuesday night with the Mormon stories. Gerardo and I have been busy absolutely pretty much all day. Happy Mother's Day to all you blessed mamas. I hope you're having a wonderful day. You deserve to. You deserve to have wonderful days every day. I know there are so many moms in the world who are not having a good day today, and we need to think about them, bless them, hopefully pray for them. Hopefully things can improve in the world. <sighs> if people could learn how to respect each other, it would be a glorious thing, wouldn't it? So anyway, I've been having a fantastic time today. Uh, I went and had pie and ice cream with my mama. <laughs> yeah, mm, that's a good way. Mom's old enough. She's 91, 92. She doesn't want things. She doesn't want stuff because she has to pile it up. And, you know, let's be real. She's got a great point, right? So we just took her a lovely little dessert and had a wonderful hour together or so. And then she had to rest. So things are going good. Who all's here? All right. Doug Vincent. Prof or not, good to see you. Paul Osborne, you're here. You better be, young man. Um, uh, let's see who else is here. Dan Vogel, hello. Welcome, Dan. Dan Vogel and Lamb Chop. Welcome, Lamb Chop. Boy, that last live I did on Thursday night sure sucked with that bad connection, didn't it, Lamb Chop? <laughs> I could only go for 15 minutes and then quit. I said, now, whoa. I was introducing a new voice into the world of the discussion of the clarifying of the papyri and the Kirtland Egyptian papers and the book of Abraham and the story of Abraham and the muddying up of the waters by the apologists and how the rest of us are sick and tired of their stupidity and silly arguments. And we have called for a clarifying and we are grouping together as a group of hundreds of millions of us. And we are going to clarify this issue. And on a serious note, we really are. We are going to start calling the apologetics to account. We are going to hold the fire under their feet. And I'm going to begin, well, I've already begun with <laughs> several of these, but I'm going to continue on very, very well tonight with Paul Osborne. And this is a good thing because Paul rocks. And I mean rocks in many ways. I don't mean just in a rocking chair. 
like a little old fuddy dud grandpa. Here's to Paul. <laughs> oh, I'm crying and slopping my water all over me. Okay, everybody here pressing the count for Paul D. McKee. Welcome. Jason Abbott has some really good visuals and he gets it and he's not Mormon. Wow. Yeah, Dan Vogel. No kidding. Yeah, Jason Abbott introduced himself to us earlier this week and uh, I am impressed with him. He gets it. It's really, it's really good. Um, I have to say I had another friend pop completely out of the woodwork entirely unexpected just a day or two after Jason Abbott popped up. And I'm going to call him Elder Igloo. Elder Igloo, if you're watching, welcome to the show. And thank you so much for all of your fantastic materials. Uh, this is interesting because in the process of trying to say, look, enough shenanigans is enough shenanigans. Uh, we just want to understand. We really do. Uh, we're, we're tired. I'll tell you what we're tired of in some respects. We're tired of the defending of the faith and the refuting of the faith. Um, I mean, that can be fun, right? But in so many ways, there is so much more to this. And in order to do that, we have to understand the documents better. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do. Uh, it's certainly why Dan Vogel is writing. It is certainly why Paul Osborne is writing. Well, since I've been screaming now for more clarity and all, I have had so many phone calls and so many emails and so many people coming out of the woodwork and sending me material and helping me with graphics and visuals and research. And I want to thank all of you. It is really cool how this is starting to work. I promise you're not going to be disappointed on Tuesday night when I show up on Mormon Stories at five o'clock. I hope to see you all at five o'clock mountain time in the United States. Tonight, let's jump on Paul Osborne. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't resist. All right. Backyard professor goofing off. I didn't mean that literally. See, that's the stupidity of literalism. You know, let's jump on Paul Osborne. Uh, anyway, <laughs> boy, I'm probably never going to hear the end of that one, am I? Okay. Uh, I got to resituate this. <laughs> I'm in a good mood. I'm having a lot of fun. Gerardo and I had a wonderful uh, six-hour session of study today that was just fantastic for Tuesday night. I want to get this to where I can read. Well, let's see. Maybe I can do it this way. Oh, hey, Tim Rathbone. Welcome. Miriam Moore. Welcome. Poppy's Jeff Day. Welcome. Patty Cake. Yes, we're also tired of the BS. Amen. Patty Lulu cake. Yeah, baby. Uh, let's see who else is here. What was your, was that your invitation of the apologist? Are you asking me, Dan, jumping on Paul Osborne? Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh, shucks. Okay, Jonathan Streeter, he's fun stuff. 
Mike Langley, welcome, welcome. So it looks like we've got a good group here. Okay, I'm going to get started. Let me, uh, boy, going to be a fun night tonight. Uh, we're in for a lot of laughs, a lot of interesting. Oh, hey, while I'm speaking about it, thinking about it. Oh, that could have been a disaster. Let me turn down the heat real quick so it doesn't interrupt me. <clears throat> that would have been miserable. Oh, and that light's in the lights in the background. I know, I know. Get on with it. You're fiddle farting around here. You're not getting anything done. Okay, hold on. Hey, the backyard professor's got to goof off a little bit. Hey, check this out. You got to see a new part of my library. Close that so the lovely curtains in behind so you don't see my dirty underwear or something stupid and embarrassing like that. Oh, don't run over the cord, you dork. Man, I'm not getting it done tonight. Okay, here we go. Don't run over the electronics for the love of Sam Walton. I can take his name in vain. I used to work for him. Okay, we're just about set. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Now it's time to get serious. It's time to get serious. Oh, I'm having so much fun, I can't see straight. I'm not going to be this way on Mormon stories unless, of course, he lets me. <laughs> oh, Gerardo put up an advertisement on uh, <laughs> on the Lynn's Facebook page, right? On the, uh, on the introduction, you know. We've got a great guest. Uh, a fair co-founder, backyard professor, is going to talk about the translation method of the Joseph Smith with the Joseph Smith papyri and all that. And they had a knockdown or drag out argument on uh, what kind of a chump from fair. Why are you getting people from fair? Uh, you know, too bad Robert Rittner was, wasn't alive. He would massacre this guy. He would mop the floor with him and all that. And Gerardo and I are sitting back just laughing our butts off because nobody bothered to ask for the first several hours who the backyard professor was, right? <laughs> Finally, someone gets on there and says, uh, it's unlikely Robert Rittner's going to mop the floor with him. Maybe you ought to Google the backyard professor and find out who he is first and all that, you know. And so finally, might have been one of you for all I know that watched this. You got on there and said, uh, hey, Google this guy first before you start ridiculing him and telling us how stupid he's going to be, and how lousy the show's going to be. This is going to be a spectacular show and on and on. Anyway, here's to fun discussions. Okay, one interesting idea that Osborne brings out on Joseph Smith. Now, he was 36, he notes, when he published the Book of Abraham, including the facsimiles, right? And that was in 1842, Times and Seasons. And there's no indication that Smith ever examined the original vignette of facsimile number three under a magnifying glass or whether he put on glasses to improve his visibility. Now, that's interesting. Nobody can say that Smith's vision was 2020 or how hard it was for him to read. Now, why does Paul bring this up? Because it's really interesting. We can speculate, of course, how well he could see the papyri, yeah, but let's face it, he misidentified so much 
in facsimile number three, he was identifying uh, women as men. And maybe it wasn't because Joseph Smith was stupid or even deceptive. Paul kind of asked the question, well, what about his eyesight? We know Hiram had sunglasses, and Paul shows a picture of those sunglasses. I'll see if I can show it to you. But the idea is, if his eyesight wasn't very good, Joseph Smith may have genuinely misidentified some of the characters and their gender. And I thought, that, that's kind of an interesting argument. That's kind of a that's kind of a cool little point that Osborne is bringing up. And and we don't have to. Uh, antagonize Joseph Smith so much as try to understand him. But what happens if it really was the case that he actually needed sunglasses or, or uh, glasses, glass, you know, these. Very interesting, Paul. Very cool. Now here is a, I've got this magnified. I'm trying to read this off the website. I've got this magnified of the sunglasses, or sunglasses, sorry, I'm stuck on sunglasses, the glasses that they wore back then. And uh, of course, the book of Abraham provides a, an interesting, but a rather fictitious story of the origin uh, of Egypt. I mean, we're all aware of that, right? Of how it came to be. The woman finding the land underwater and so on and so forth and setting up her sons as the basis of the government and all that. Oh, and the kings of the priesthood, the kings would feign claim the priesthood through Noah's lineage, materials like that. Well, okay, let's say his eyesight was off. It still doesn't matter. This misidentification of Isis as a human male king, that's pretty big. That's colossal. The significance is serious as well. Uh, she is a queen. She's not a king. She is immortal. She's not just a woman. Uh, she's not a mortal man. She's not a mortal woman either, as far as that goes. So Smith's error created a paradox. Now, this is kind of a cool way for uh, Paul to put it. And they can't solve because a woman is a woman and a man is a man. So according to current Latter-day Saint theology, the family proclamation to the world, uh, gender is an essential characteristic of individual, pre-mortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. But now we have an instance, and actually we have two instances in fact, simile number three, right? When a woman is being identified as a man and nothing could be further from the truth, Isis is no more a king than Mott is a prince. There you go, the yellow one, Isis. She is no more a king than Mott is a prince and Mott is the orange one here. And so when a woman is being identified as a man, both explanations given by Smith about these persons are false. Furthermore, the church's proclamation asserts that God affirms that marriage is between a man and a woman 
is essential to his eternal plan. Hence, Smith's declaration in identifying Isis as a man-king for all intents and purposes divorces her from her lawful husband, Osiris, who sits on the throne before her very presence. So Mormonism has divorced Isis from Osiris and disregards the Christian caveat that what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. The explanation of facsimile number three has turned Isis into a mortal man-king and has put asunder the godly marriage of Osiris and Isis, which they have enjoyed since time began. And you got to admit, that's really, honest to goodness, kind of a fascinating point, right? It really is. You kind of go, hey, man, that's uh, very interesting. Miriam Moore, welcome. Mark Crispin, welcome. I'm trying to make sure I say hi to everybody. Peter Higgs, how you doing? Welcome. I'm just working through some of Paul Osborne's ideas, and I have enjoyed his writings for quite a while. Now, here's where Paul Osborne gets fun. Seriously. Uh, I'm wondering if I can, I'll bet you, I'll bet you I can get away with doing this. Let me see if I can. Ooh, maybe, maybe not. Okay. Let's see if I can get away with setting this up side by side without dropping either computer. Now, one of the cool things that Paul does is he addresses various uh, groups online. He addresses various oh, individual apologists, um, Jeff Lindsay, for instance, Steve Smoot, uh, John Gee, Kerry Molstein, etc., Hugh Nibley. Uh, and so... In this, in this particular discussion, he acts like he's having a discussion with them because they refuse to come over and have an actual discussion on the message board. And so he is showing us what a discussion could look like with the apologists. And so he, in this particular issue, he is talking with Pearl of Great Price Central. <laughs> this is a lot of fun because Paul just kind of gives it to him. So they say, while this figure might be reasonably identified as Isis based on similar iconographic elements found in comparable scenes, the identity of this figure cannot be securely reached based solely on reading the poorly preserved hieroglyphs. Okay, so the identification of this Isis figure, once again, the yellow, the identification of this figure as Isis is therefore worth exploring, but there are reasons for this identification to be accepted cautiously. And Osborne says, a look at the above carefully crafted and deceptive statement. Notice this made by apologists at Pearl of Great Price Central, is in order. The statement correctly ties the pictorial image of Isis to the text above her. 
There's Isis, and there's the text above her right there, right? So it correctly ties the pictorial image of Isis to that text. So the text and image should agree. And in this case, it does, which is nice. But the statement by Pearl of Great Price Central creates a false out when it says that ISIS cannot be positively identified solely on the reading of the text, but we don't need the text. Very interesting, huh? There is no need to proceed cautiously. And here comes Paul Osborne with one of his PowerPoints. Education is grand. And Paul Osborne demonstrates that to us very easily. What is so nice about this particular feature is the very image of Isis, again, the figure in the yellow, in her typical form and wearing one of her typical divine crowns that defines her power and dress in her garb is all inclusive to prove that it's her. Isis manifest in the flesh. There need not be a caption of text above her because every single Egyptian, both in the north and in the south, will know instantly who the person is just by the iconic image of her being adorned with the divine crown as she stands behind the throne of her seated green-faced husband, Osiris. That's awesome. See, we don't need an inscription to prove that it's Isis at all. Inscriptions are irrelevant. It's like when you see pictures of Superman, you know it's not Aquaman or Batman, right? The uniform tells us every time, well, that's not Thor, that's Superman. Same principle. I, uh, Paul didn't say that, I just did, just off the top of my head just now. So this same lovely lady that is featured upon countless funerary papyri inscribed on mighty monuments throughout all of Egypt and adorned with the divine crown as she stands behind the uh, throne and adorned on temple and tomb walls being carved and painted manifestations of the divine queen of heaven. And again, the inscription by all Egyptological standards, uh, according to absolutely every Egyptologist, whether Mormon or non-Mormon alike, the inscription above her hand reads, Isis, the great mother of the gods. So she really is the queen of heaven. Notice the stars above all of those characters even above the hieroglyphics, going all the way across the facsimile. This is, Paul Osborne properly identifies this as a heavenly scene. This is not happening on earth. Yet another goof of Joseph Smith, who said Abraham is reasoning upon the principles of astronomy to the Egyptian court while he's here on earth. Well, that's nice and dandy, but the context of the iconography, because of those stars, definitely establishes that this is a heavenly scene. And that's not just being nitpicky, that's pretty cotton-picking serious, right?
So the context is all important because this is essentially <laughs> what this is. The the figure, the figure uh, between the green and orange figure that I have colored for identification purposes, the figure that I didn't color is the owner of the papyri whore. And he is being escorted. Now, Nibley, well, Nibley too, but uh, Joseph Smith identified that final figure, the little black guy, as the slave Olimla. In all reality, that is Anubis. And what Anubis is doing is he is escorting Hor before the Lady Mott, the one in the orange. And they are all escorting the deceased into the presence of Osiris, the person on the throne. And Osiris is usually accompanied by his wife, very properly so, Isis, behind the throne. <clears throat> so this is after Horus has died. He's gone. He's dead. This was at the tail end of the Book of Breathings in the Joseph Smith papyri. It was on the uh, other end of the scroll. And so this is the final, this is the introduction into heaven from the Egyptian uh, manner of things, right? So he is being escorted into the presence of Osiris, which is in the next life. And that's what the stars above those hieroglyphs are depicting. So, uh, you know, context matters. That's the, that's the theory. That's the idea with uh, Paul Osborne and everybody else who bothers to look at that. So we know Isis when we see her, just as Christians know Jesus when they see a portrait or a work of art depicting him doing his ministry and all of the things associated with that. So that's that's Paul Osborne, and that's typical Paul Osborne, correcting a possible confusion. And then he, he goes on to continue addressing Pearl of Great Price Central. where he says, it seems clear to me that the apologist intentions are an attempt to stir confusion and doubt in the minds of their readers and to coax them into thinking that there must be another answer rather than coming to the obvious conclusion that the person is none other than Queen Isis. Now, this is glorious to me because I'm not the only one who sees that the apologists are confusing and mudding up the issues, and I am calling for a clarifying. So is Paul Osborne, Dan Vogel does in his book. Oh, uh, you want to see two people who really scream about the idea of stop lying and confusing all of the issues that they talk about. Uh, no one is second to Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon on their Mormonism Live. I mean, week after week after week after week after week, they are either bringing on powerhouse guests or they are analyzing in a typical, beautiful, analytical mode what church leaders have said both in the past and the present and how the uh, current concepts of religious thought within Mormonism are being carefully groomed 
to deceive. That's important. Bill Rill is just, he has put out in the last six months, they, they alternate every other week, right? You knew that. One week, Bill Rill will take over and, and, and put together the presentation for the night. And then the next week, uh, Radio Free Mormon. And it's okay if they bring on a guest or it's okay if they just analyze some documents from the polygamy era or the era back when Joseph Smith had his first vision, whatever it is. And then they'll discuss some of the early Mormon concepts and then they'll bring it up to date with today's current prophets and apostles or the current handbook or whatever. And they're trying to explore this theme that uh, we have a deliberate confusing of the issues. Why do you think, you know, for the first time in the history of Mormonism, just within the last, say, decade, we've had three, possibly four, what they have termed rescue missions. Uh, doesn't that strike you as rather odd? Rescue missions? Really? <laughs> wow. They are so losing the battle with the youth or with the next generation above the youth or with us older generation because we are all recognizing deception when we have it handed to us and we are voting with our feet. Look, just last week, they had on the queen of the, quote, anti-Mormon Sandra Tanner. It was a terrific show. Well, thanks to Sandra Tanner and Gerald Tanner, Mormonism was literally forced to open up and become far more transparent. Now, if you, uh, and it doesn't matter whether you're a hobbyist, it doesn't matter if you're a full-fledged Mormon, it doesn't matter if you're a full-fledged critic or whatever, if you're a biographer of Joseph Smith, whatever your thing is with Mormonism, if you are enjoying the Joseph Smith Papers Project, which is a fantastic collection, gathering, and publishing of everything Joseph Smith ever wrote, said, thought, did, pretended, imagined, revealed, and conceived of. We have the Tanners to thank for that. They were excommunicated for telling the open truth. And now it turns out, because now we have the evidence they're giving us, I've got several volumes of the Joseph Smith papers right up there on my library shelf. Now they have given us the information that shows, oh, well, maybe the Tanners weren't lying so much after all. Maybe they really weren't taking things out of context like we accused them of. Well, you didn't only accuse them, you idiots. You excommunicated them, you vilified them, and you turned them into enemies, and all they were trying to do was come to what? Clarity an understanding, an open grasping, and ability to research with the documents. But no, Boyd K. Packerism took over long before he was even a Twinkie in his mama's eye. 
and they hid everything. If the Tanners would have never shown up, we still wouldn't have the Joseph Smith papers. If a bunch of us weren't voting with our feet and coming on the internet and saying, look, hey, uh, you know, yes, it's true, you said this, but that doesn't work because I Googled that subject. I Googled the first vision. You can no longer control the narrative on the first vision. There really are several different conflicting and very graded accounts of the first vision. And it really makes it look suspicious on Joseph Smith's part. You can no longer tell us, oh, no, you're not allowed to think that. Yeah, well, the hell, we're going by the evidence. See, this is the significance of all this. So it's a great day we're living in. Cheers to clarity. And we're insisting on it. And we will continue to also. Now, look, we're not trying to be antagonistic or enemies of everyone so that we cause. Uh, this is not like a battle and a war. But we're not against the idea of an open dialogue. However, we got to include all the evidence. And this is why I, I actually told these guys this on the message board a couple weeks ago. I actually told Dan Vogel and Paul Osborne and Radio Free Mormon and several others, I said, you know, if we all were to group up and sit down together with the apologists, it's you guys I would want to have on my side. <laughs> you know, uh, I would be the tail of the dog wagging like a happy little puppy because these guys are so vastly far beyond me. I'll never catch up to them, but I wouldn't mind being on the team if they wouldn't mind having a, a water boy every now and then. So, so this theme now, uh, tonight, of course, I'm focusing on the Egyptology in the book of Abraham because that was Paul Osborne's favorite subject. But the openness of the idea, see, quit making it more complex than it needs to be. That is deliberate because, I mean, after all, they're trying to buy time. Look, they've been doing this now for going on two centuries uh, screw that noise. Buying time? No. You face the evidence. You face the historical music and the actual open evidence. And let us discuss. We're to that point, truly. So it was nice to see that I wasn't the only one. I point out to the statement from Pearl Great Price Central, the identification of this figure of ISIS is therefore worth exploring is an insult to Egyptology. Notice how Paul handles this. And it's a slap in the face to the ancient Egyptian religion. Why, though? Why? Because it's somewhat distressing for me to cite the apologetic nonsense and defend the most important female goddess in Egyptian mythology. That's why. I mean, it should be fabulously obvious who we're dealing with. But no, the apologists want to try to make it more difficult than it really is. They want us to try to question our ability to see and understand ISIS. And it's just ridiculous. That's what Osborne's saying. I, I agree with him entirely. 
So there's nothing really to explore in trying to determine the, identi the identity of Isis, the character in the yellow. Anybody who has a first grade education of Egyptian mythology is going to always know that's Isis, period. That's not a question. Text or no text is irrelevant. That's Isis. So, and oh, and and this is really kind of cool too. A question was asked. Golly, a question was asked. So Osiris, the guy on the throne there, is he the one wearing the crown of Egypt? Yes, Osiris wears the Atif crown. It's a tall, bulbous white crown at center position that is flanked by two ostrich feathers. That's really important too. So the idea here, Joseph Smith led his followers to believe that Abraham was so crowned and usurped the throne by the polite permission of the king. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's no native Egyptian king who honored his birthright would have ever allowed an Asiatic foreigner to sit upon the throne in the presence of his courtiers and royal court. Everything that I know about ancient Egypt screams against that notion and serves to prove Joseph Smith's story is utterly false. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So there is that. And now further, now the Pearl Great Price Central goes on to say, the identification of this figure as Isis is therefore worth exploring, but there are reasons for this identification to be accepted cautiously. It says there's no reason to, quote, cautiously recognize Isis for who she really is in the funerary vignette of facsimile number three or any other funerary vignette for that matter. It really is a rather simple and easy process to come to a natural conclusion. All one need do is open their eyes and ask the question. I love it. I, I, I love his just straightforward, almost childlike, simple approach, because it really is that. that This is not complicated rocket science, like the apologists are always trying to make us make it seem so that we have to, ooh, well, I wonder if that's really ISIS. We don't have to do that at all. Ten minutes will educate us on how to identify ISIS in absolutely every single drawing we find in ancient Egyptology, in other words, right? So who is this lovely lady and who is the other lovely lady as figure four? They are ISIS and Mott, two of the most prominent goddesses of Egyptian mythology. Nothing could be more logical than to recognize her for who she really is. It is by that which figure two is not that defines her. Now, the other interesting situation here that Paul is pointing out, Mott, the figure in orange. Now she is not, she is not a man, she is not a king, she is not a prince, she is not a mortal either. She is a woman, she is a goddess of justice and truth, and she is immortal. Mott always has the feather on top of her head. That's how you can recognize her. Now, this is a feather in a sun disc, right? So this is one of the beautiful things about this whole issue is those two goddesses are easily and usually always identifiable. 
without question. That is really serious. And again, uh, the, you know, you can, oh, I mean, you can show a little bit of charity for Joseph Smith, I suppose, and say, well, he was, he had bad eyesight. Now, see, Paul Osborne is fairly trying to give Joseph Smith as much credibility as he can, which ain't much, if any at all. But to denigrate the goddesses and turn them into men for the sake of patriarchy, not happening. Not on Paul Osborne's watch. Not on the backyard professor's watch. The mother goddess, the idea, the theme of the ancient queen of heaven, the, the mother goddess religion is absolutely one of my favorite all-time subjects anyway. So I'm with Paul all the way on that. It's fun stuff. So Pearl of Great Price Central continues on, and they go, by virtue of her royal associations and because of her extensive worship throughout the Mediterranean world now, and by the time of the Joseph Smith papyri, Isis had come to be identified as the very Pharaoh-S of Egypt. In one text from this time period, for example, she is called the Pharaoh-S of the whole world. And of her additional dozen epithets and titles, she is also designated, among other things, as the ruler of the two lands in the house of joy and ruler of gods and goddesses, the pharaohess of everything, the queen who seizes office by her power, excellent ruler. Excellent queen, excellent ruler on the throne of her father, ruler of Egypt, and queen of all Egypt, right? So, Osborne's response, the historical extrapolation in the apologetic excuse above given to justify Smith's mistake in labeling Isis as a pharaoh is not without its own problems and contradictions of what the prophet Joseph Smith originally claimed concerning the nature and origin of the papyrus itself. The papyrus was said to be a literal 3,500-year-old Abraham autograph, literally written by his own hand. So Abraham's role was a sacred writing preserved in a tomb said to have dated to that era and was interned with mummies, which Smith claimed were royal mummies. And uh, Dan Vogel has a great discussion of this in his book. All of these claims are documented in official church historical records. And Smith identified the papyrus to have been as old as Abraham himself, and that is Smith's uh, so-called literalness that is really important to keep in mind, uh, and it really was there. It was real. So according to Smith, the person sitting on the throne is Abraham drawn by his own hand. The person behind the throne is said to be the king of Egypt, and that was during Abraham's sojourn into 
uh, Egypt, and he too was drawn by Abraham's own hand. All of the writing on that scroll was written by the hand of Abraham during his ministry, everything written and drawn on the scroll. Now, this is the book of breathings, right? This is the source of the book of Abraham. Everything drawn on that scroll was a representation of events that occurred Excuse me, during Abraham's lifetime. The apologists attempt to get their readers to take their eyes of the present and look to a future in which had nothing to do with what Smith said the record represented. Right? It makes no difference with anyone in the Mediterranean world whatsoever. Uh, thought of ISIS during later times. Now, now, this is an interesting point that he makes. The only Egyptian time we need to concern ourselves with is Abraham's time, because, and and this is uh, this is kind of uh, one of the tension points between apologists and critics. Uh, we are taking what Joseph Smith said seriously, and the apologists no longer believe what Joseph Smith said. <laughs> and yet, they're the ones supposed to be defending Joseph Smith. Yeah, I know. Crazy beans, but that's how it works. So here's the idea. The only Egyptian time we need to concern ourselves with is Abraham's time, an Egyptian dynasty that is far removed from the actual age of the papyrus, which Smith mistakenly misdated. And Osborne is strictly correct here. The apologists attempt to rationalize Smith's mistake in identifying a dead woman, Isis, with a living king of Egypt. Smith was wrong. The person he identified as a king was not the man-king Abraham visited, and Isis was not alive on planet Earth at the time Abraham visited Egypt. Furthermore, Smith makes no allusion or reference to having been visited by an Egyptian goddess representing herself as King Pharaoh, and neither does the record state that King Pharaoh is a representative of goddess of the Egyptian religion. Those kinds of inferences come from apologists attempting to excuse Smith's mistakes by applying creative principles of syncretism of the Egyptian religion. And it can't work if we want to take Joseph Smith seriously. There's the catch, right? Because uh, the claim is made, and uh, Joseph Smith probably actually helped perpetuate this. I mean, he certainly didn't do anything to discourage it by any means, but the claim is made that um, I, as the prophet of the Restoration, receive revelation pretty much more or less on pretty much more or less of everything you want to know about. That was Joseph Smith's take. And 
his followers, and I mean, we have lots of evidence of this in the historical records. I mean, just look into the Journal of Discourses and see what they said after Joseph Smith was killed at Carthage Jail. They continually, perpetually promote this theme that, oh, hey, no, no, we can't be wrong because that was given to the prophet by revelation. I mean, look at the Doctrine and Covenants. Criminy, look at the original Book of Commandments. You know, the seer stones, the Urim and Thummim, on and on and on, right? Well, there you have it. So do note that apologetic twists and turns do nothing to justify Smith's mistake in identifying Mott, once again, the orange figure here, figure four, as a prince of Pharaoh. Never is Mott cited or referred to as a prince of Egypt. She, like Isis, is a woman, not a man. So we see that the apologetic attempt to justify Smith's mistakes by trying to find obscure representations outside of the historical context of what Smith was originally claiming. Well, I mean, that is obviously a complete failure. Yeah. So they are welcome to ascribe ISIS as kingly from a certain point of view, if that's what they want, but they will have a serious problem with ascribing Mott as a prince of Egypt, and it is entirely a losing proposition because Mott is not a son. So see again this, this clarifying, straight-shooting approach of Paul Osborne is actually a breath of fresh air. He's not trying to argue to be an enemy of anybody within Mormonism. He's simply saying, look, let's, let's take the religion of ancient Egypt seriously enough to be truthful about proper identifications. And when those are not made, then let's be truthful enough to acknowledge that. Well, it would be fine and well. They would do that if it was, say, a historian of Mormonism. But this is the prophet Joseph Smith. And so they almost act like they're allowed to make an exception for Joseph and make up every kind of possible excuse and and just go real soft on him and, you know, uh, just make sure that he maintains his prophetic status. And Osborne says, nope, same guideline all the way across the board. That is what will lead to a greater clarity. Now, come on, you can't. I think that's that's pretty good. Yeah. I call for that with the papyri all the time. Uh-oh, what did I do? Okay. Now let's see where am I here? Okay. Okay. Yeah, this is this is really fascinating too. Now going back to I don't know what I did wrong. Anyway, Pearl of Great Price Central. Facsimile number one. Now we're going to kind of switch gears and move over to 
uh, facsimile number one. And I actually, hang on just one quick sec. I know I'm not supposed to leave the screen because it's a bad thing to do because people want to see my lovely face and all that jazz. I get it. Calm down. Mellow out. Be cool. I'm right here. <clears throat> so on facsimile number one now, and, and again, let's just, let's take a look at the, let's take a look at the facsimile number one. This visually, and I'm showing you the original papyri. This visually depicts the narrative contained in Abraham 1, 12 through 19, as interpreted by Joseph Smith. And uh, this scene depicts Abraham fastened upon an altar before some idolatrous gods. An idolatrous priest is about to sacrifice uh, Abraham, who is protected by the angel of the Lord. Now, everyone can agree that Joseph Smith interpreted the scene in which he claimed the drawing shows Abraham being fastened upon an altar. What everyone can't agree with is that the person on the so-called altar is actually fastened to the altar. Have you ever thought of that? There are no fastening things He's not actually fastened on the altar. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So first, Egyptologist Robert Rittner. He is on record for specifically stating that the furniture depicted in facsimile number one is not an altar, but it is a lion bed with Osiris upon it. Only Mormon scholars and only... Mormon Egyptologists derive and claim that the lion couch is an altar of sacrifice. Yeah, nobody else does. In fact, Michael Dennis Rhodes, quite a few years back at a meeting of actual Egyptologists, not a special farms group in Provo, Utah, but I can't remember. Robert Rittner talks about it in his book. Uh, he accidentally made the mistake of calling it uh, an altar. And it caused quite a consternation, and he had to quickly backpedal and say, oh, I, I meant lion couch, I meant lion You know, he was so used to talking in the Mormon lingo that he blew it and let it slip. And uh, the Egyptologist, they won't let him get away with that kind of stupid Mormonizing bullshit. So neither should we. Now, why they think they have the right to go ahead and do that once they go back home to Provo is beyond me because it's a double-faced sort of hypocrisy. And we're going to call them on it because we want clarity, right? Paul Osborne, ladies and gentlemen, I'm showing you Paul Osborne is doing this exactly. Second, the man on the bed is not fastened to that bed. And we just saw that. So there are no bonds, there are no shackles, there's no cords, there's nothing to fasten anyone. The idea that the man is fastened to an altar is pure imagination. There is nothing in the vignette and there is nothing in the hieroglyphic writing that supports the idea or suggests the man is fastened for a sacrifice with Abraham upon it. 
And that's actually a really strong point, right? So the idea that the bird, where are you, my pretty? Let me see if I can find this. Yeah, this will work for now. Let me focus in on this. The uh, the idea, the bird up here. See the bird right there above Abraham's head on the altar <laughs> that I just now screamed against. The idea here is that the Bird is a genuine depiction of an angel of Jehovah is beyond absurd. No non-Mormon Egyptologist will support that notion. It is a Mormon biased assertion based on Smith's erroneous interpretation, and it is completely wrong. If the vignette of facsimile number one were on display in any museum of the world, the description of its content would be described in genuine terms agreeable with conventional Egyptology as portrayed in an authentic matter that conveys the truth about what the scene actually represents. Therefore, we pretty much understand now that the Mormons aren't interested in the truth. They are only interested in what Joseph Smith said. And actually... That, too, needs to be qualified, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, because there are some things that Joseph Smith said that there are some Mormon Egyptologists who are very, very, very uncomfortable with now. Kind of interesting, that, isn't it? They are attempting to have their cake and eat it, too. So now, uh, again, Paul says that you may have, uh, this is the book of Abraham that he's talking about now here, uh, that you may have a knowledge of this altar. I will refer you to the representation at the commencement of the record. It, I've seen many of these beautiful funerary lion beds depicted on various papyri and tomb walls. The funerary bed is made for those who are already dead and await resurrection through Osiris. It is a bed whereupon the mummy may lie in peace with the promise of receiving blessing and joy in the afterlife. And what is so interesting here is, now see that this uh, facsimile one was depicted on the front side of the book of, on the front end of the book of breathings. Then you have the long text in between. The culmination from facsimile number one very properly ends up being facsimile number three, where the deceased is taken into the heavenly presence of Osiris. And at the end of the Book of Breathings, facsimile number three was there. And virtually everybody agrees to that. That's not uh, a kind of trying to get a point against the Mormons. The Mormon scholars, as well as the non-Mormon scholars, agree that is what the Book of Breathings uh, more or less looks like. So that's real interesting. So the priests laid violence upon me. 
I see no violence. In fact, some women were one whatsoever. Now, here's an interesting Osborne approach. I, I, I think this is very interesting. I see no violence whatsoever. You must be exaggerating. No, I do see a lovely floral libation stand at the head of the bed, finely balanced and fully furnished. What a peaceful scene. Only a Paul Osborne has this kind of eye. Let's take a closer look. This is really kind of fantastically interesting to see this. I'll show it to you with the with the uh, actual. There is nothing being turned over, destroyed, out of place, etc. Very interesting. Notice the lovely libation at the head of the lion couch, but it's just standing there peacefully, right? A lovely lotus flower and a pot wherein to quench one's thirst. It was made after the form of a bedstead, a beautifully crafted lion bed having seven knobs on the side. Finely gilded, no doubt, perhaps even gold leaf. I see the god Anubis is attending the sacred ceremony. You surely are blessed. Sadly, the facsimile number one published in the Times and Seasons doesn't maintain the integrity of the side of the bed's motive and the seven knobs are not defined. Thus, any symbolism in the number seven intended by the original artist is lost in the poor Mormon reproduction. And I don't have a, I thought I had a Mormon reproduction here close to me, and I don't. I got facsimile number three, but I didn't get facsimile number one. I apologize. I was going to do that. Sorry, Paul. I blew it for you, pal. Anyway, that's kind of fun and interesting. Book of Abraham wrote, and as they lifted up their hands upon me, and Paul asks a very pertinent question here. He says, they, who is they? Who, who is the book of Abraham talking about, right? Well, you must mean Anubis because it is Anubis that extends his arm over you with the cup of blessing. Oh, and I had a really good depiction. Hang on. I know. I know. Calm down. I'm going to leave the scene again because I really do want to show you this. If I cannot all get it, it's really quite a good picture with Anubis as the, now I'm not going to get it. Darn it. I thought I had it. Maybe I don't. Nope. I don't see it. I don't see it. That's too bad. I've got facsimile three, but not facsimile number one. We've got facsimile number two, but not facsimile number one. Ah, shoot. Thought I had it. I can't even find my scripture. Holy cow, that's disgusting. Anyway, Anubis extends his hands over the dead person in facsimile number one. As a blessing. Hold on, I might have it right here. Well, anyway, I'm not going to push it. Hold it. I really do have it right here. Boy, I'm blowing this one, aren't I? No, I really do. I think I do. No, that's the... Uh...
There we go. Well, this is Jeremy's response to Fair Mormon, and he's beating the absolute snot out of him. However, in this part of the CES letter, hey, I get to show off the CES letter. There's facsimile number one, the original with the lacuna, right? And there's another lion couch scene with Anubis. And this is a beneficent blessing. He is blessing the person. The canopic jars are carefully set under the bed. And Isis is joined in the sacred bonds of love, which is the bird. Here. That's usually Isis. Sometimes she's in the center in lion couch scenes. Sometimes she's not. There's more lion couch scenes right there. Notice how Anubis is carefully attending to the person on the, on the bench. Right? That's not a scene of violence at all. You see how Joseph Smith's context has basically changed it so dramatically that it's literally unrecognizable as an actual religious blessed scene. This is what Paul is calling context to. He's saying this kind of context is what clarifies the entire theme of the Book of Breathings. And we have to remember one thing, interestingly enough, the Book of Breathings. Now, um, as Rittner and Mark Conan and H. Michael Marquardt has shown, actually, even Hugh Nibley talked about this in his message of the Joseph Smith papyri. These books of breathing are specific types of documents created in a specific era, and that is Ptolemaic Egypt. Yeah, much later in time uh, on the time scale, it's from like. Uh, I'm going to say as a rough characterization, 200 B.C. down to about 50 B.C. Now, that's not exact, but what I mean by late is, uh, you know, 600 B.C. compared to Ptolemaic Egypt, 600 B.C. is ancient history. Uh, 1500 B.C. is way, way, way back there, right? So that's what we're meaning. But these books of breathings are actually more or less the same subject as the ancient Egyptian book of the dead. It's just that they're more abbreviated. And this style of abbreviation with the added picture on the front and the end of the book of breathing, this particular style of the book of breathing was a very prominent part of that kind of document. That's why we know about it. But it had nothing to do with violence of the person. It had nothing to do with human sacrifice either. And it had nothing to do with an earthly scene at the end of the Book of Breathings. It was the ushering in of the person to the heavenly realm of peace and blessing. This is what Osborne was emphasizing. And this is what the context of the Egyptian 
of uh, the Egyptian materials, the, the mythology, that's the context. And that's pretty much the context of all of the books of breathings. I mean, you know, they try to make it, the apologetic of Nibali tried to make uh, the facsimile number one as a completely unique document because, of course, it has a completely unique story. In looking at all of the Egyptian iconography, however, each and every single drawing could be claimed to be fundamentally unique from all of the others for the simple reason that each book of breathing was drawn by an individual artist for a specific individual. And so all of them have their own unique points, and yet there is a kind of a, well, there's a particular type of style and pattern that this type of drawing is going to. I mean, for instance, the dead is lying on a lion couch. Well, the lion couch isn't always going to be drawn the same way or the same direction. Sometimes some lion couches have the four canopic jars under them. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes there's nothing under the lion couch. Sometimes there's one bird above the person on the lion couch. Sometimes there's two birds. Sometimes there's three birds. Sometimes there are no birds. So, I mean, you could make a case that it wouldn't matter which one you picked. It's going to be absolutely unique. And yet there is a, uh, a type that all of them are going to approach and be a part of, right? So the apologetic is kind of mamby-pamby in that regard, but the context that Smith gave this particular lion couch is blatantly wrong. That's his point. And I thought, personally, man, I thought he made his point really good on that. So that would be my take on this. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Radio Free Mormon, welcome. Yeah, tonight is the Paul Osborne show. I'm just sharing some of his cool insights and all that, so, all that stuff. Poppy's Jeff Day, welcome. Uh, Aussie Dunstan, welcome. Yeah, good to see you, Radio Free Mormon. How you doing, brother? Hopefully, you're doing good. Radio Free Mormon is uh, always around to inspire all of us as much as he can, and we're very grateful for that. Osborne goes on again as the... Now he's just sharing the Book of Abraham stuff so that he can... Oh, here we go. Uh, this is yet again another uh, very good point. Yes, we do like the jokes, RFM. Keep telling them. Ah, he writes in addition that Robert Rittner points out that the sacrifice on the book of or in the book of Abraham is largely a carbon copy of the one in the Bible. Now, this is and and it's real interesting because this has actually been a typical uh, response from 
the Egyptologist to this particular story of the Abraham sacrifice in the book of Abraham uh, from the very get-go. I mean, Theodule de Veria uh, talked about it in what was 1850, 1860, something like that. I mean, even back then, they recognized immediately, well, you know, he just he's just simply taking the theme the theme of the human sacrifice of the son, you know, Isaac, right? So when you think about it, it becomes increasingly evident that Smith borrowed ideas and incorporated them into his own stories. And Osborne is right. The apologist will just laugh this off and claim that the two stories don't compare, but they actually do, for real. And the Odds of these particular points I mentioned about coming together like this is very striking. So consider that it happened near a hill. I, I mean, in the uh, the book of Abraham story with the sacrifice of Abraham, consider it happened near a hill. Well, there's lots of hills in the world. Hills are everywhere. So can we really make a big deal about it? Yes, we can. Because it shows that Smith is trying to make his work look authentic. And what better way than to have his sacrifice story have a hill too, right? Kind of simple and yet not confusing, but it makes a point. That's the idea, right? Yeah, this is pretty important. It should also be noted that the name of the hill, Potiphar's Hill, is an anachronism. That is, it is an historical anomaly that demonstrates the book of Abraham cannot have been an ancient text back to Abraham's day, like Joseph Smith claimed. Now, today's Egyptologists, you know, the apologists, they're going to try to make us forget what Joseph Smith said, and they want to align the book of Abraham with today's Egyptology, so they're going to try to distance Smith away from what he himself said, but the early saints knew that Smith got his revelation from where Jesus Christ through the Urim and Thummim and direct revelation. Therefore, you can't just dismiss Joseph Smith if you're in the business of defending him. And that's what the apologists are. So, very interesting here. Smith picked a biblical name associated with Egyptian, and he put it into Abraham's story. Then we have two things mentioned together that are comparable in both sacrifice stories, the altar and being tied up. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to mention an altar, but it's another thing to detail the account of being bound up and tied to the altar. The explanation in facsimile number one is very explicit about that. It says, Abraham fastened upon an altar. So both accounts share two points of interest. Add that with the hill, and now we have three points of interest in counting. So Smith is making sure here now that his story in Abraham has action. 
real action. He certainly wants to keep it on the same level as the biblical sacrifice. So add the drama and make it look like a real slaying with a knife and a bad man willing to slash his victim and spill his blood all over that beautiful lion bed. Say nothing about staining the furnishings and the lovely lotus at the end of the bed with all that blood squirting out. See, I don't think Smith thought that through as he was writing his story. Smith was sloppy. So we now have four items, parallels with the stories of the sacrifice. But what about the angel of the Lord, you ask? Well, that's pretty common in the Bible, isn't it? But how many times in the Bible does the angel of the Lord come down to stop a human sacrifice? Just once. To stop Abraham from slitting his son's throat. And now we have Smith writing about an Egyptian priest about to slit Abraham's throat. So why not pull out all the stops and have the angel of the Lord come down to the rescue? See, what better way to make the book of Abraham comparable to the Bible? Now, the Bible was the big thing in Joseph Smith's day, right? And so... To a Bible-reading public, we would want to have that story familiar. If you get it way off and too unfamiliar, if you was to tell the story of Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, nobody would recognize it. But you start dealing with human sacrifice and the angel of the Lord coming down and stopping that sacrifice, your whole continent of the United States is your audience. Interesting, huh? Yeah. So make it familiar. Of course, that's what he's going to do. Yeah. See, this isn't simplistic, but it's simple. And it's not confusing. It's actually clarifying. But we're just simply taking a look at it for what it is is. Right? That's what makes Paul Osborne's materials so wonderful and strong to read. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So now we have five things to compare the story, but the next one is more on an exponential level where the math takes it to a new level. What are the odds? So when God rescues Isaac from his father's blade, the Lord comes and he says, Abraham, Abraham, not once, but twice. It's like two exclamation marks. Well, that's significant, and it's unique to the biblical account. So when Smith repeats that in his own Abraham story, it's deja vu all over again, as if to provide credibility to Smith's story. Add that with the other comparisons, and we have a sure case of borrowing or rather more like plagiarizing. He took something unique from the Bible and he put in his own similar story in order to make it look authentic. Yeah, well, this reminds me of when Smith took the King James Version materials, warts and all, from the writings of the apostles of Isaiah, of Isaiah and planted them in his Book of Mormon. Or the writings of the apostles or Isaiah and planted them in the Book of Mormon. So now we have another one to consider. How many times is the name Jehovah 
mentioned in the Bible, whether by itself or in conjunction with another word such as Jehovah Jireh. The name Jehovah is mentioned a grand total of seven times, including the account in Abraham's attempt to murder his own son. That only seven times in the Bible, and it just so happens that the name Jehovah conveniently pops up in Abraham's sacrifice story of the book of Abraham. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so, because Smith was following clues and cues laid out in the Genesis story. Now, let's understand something. Uh, and Paul doesn't mention this, but I will as sort of a sort of a fill in the cracks type understanding. Two thirds of the book of Abraham is simply the book of Genesis. Interesting, huh? Two thirds of it. Well, everybody knows Genesis is not on the Egyptian papyri, but remember. What Joseph Smith translated from the Egyptian, from the papyri itself, only went from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. All the rest of the four chapters is the book of Genesis. So that kind of helps give Paul's view here some extra added support and historical context, doesn't it? It really gives it some oomph. So he's trying to make his story match in order to make it more authentic. Boy, does he ever, right? Interesting to note that the name is mentioned only twice in the Book of Mormon. Uh, one quotes Isaiah and the other is Moroni rambling on about being judged. So this means that Smith only introduced the name one time of his own accord to the Book of Mormon and twice to the book of Abraham. So the use of the name is rare, but this comparison makes a clear point that a rare moment is evidence that Smith was copying ideas and story from the Bible. Indeed, he really was. Now, this is really important. This is quite interesting. Well, that's pretty much what Smith loved to do, <laughs> right? I mean, truly, he wrote stories, but he got idea and content from other sources in order to make up his stories. Yeah. So that that is yet another uh, idea on, and he's still talking about, I love how he takes on Pearl of Great Price Central. This is really quite fun. Yes, that's what he meant, Radio Free Mormon. Maybe he meant Jehovah Jireh. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So, well, he goes on. I, I've been, I've been an hour and a half, pretty much. Uh, I'm going to add yet another. Burlingate Price Central says more recent investigation has turned up evidence that suggests a connection between sacrifice or sacred violence and scenes of the embalming and resurrection of the deceased or the god Osiris, right? Well, 
be it as it may, or interpret those findings how you may, but the Joseph Smith papyrus of facsimile number one to include the writings have nothing to do with your supposed new evidence to support Joseph Smith's original claims, which have been proven false by the very evidence on hand. Facsimile number one and the writings that we have that Joseph Smith interpreted, Egyptologists know what they mean and what they say. That's the final say-so. And it's not a human sacrifice. There is literally nothing, and this is interesting because there's really actually nothing, whether we look at the role of the Book of Breathings or the role of the Book of the Dead of Tosheret Min that Joseph Smith identified as the Book of Joseph. It doesn't matter which one you look at. There is no human sacrifice of any kind in any of the papyri, even of the fragments that Joseph Smith possessed. There's none of it in the hypocephalus either. So, you know, he's got a point here. Oh, and then they say in 20, in 2008 and in 2010, the Egyptologist John Gee published evidence linking scenes of Osiris's mummification now and resurrection in the roof chapels of the Dendera temple with execration rituals that involved ritual violence. Now, if, if you guys watched the uh, interview on John DeLynn, Mormon Stories with Radio Free Mormon of Robert Rittner. Robert Rittner really does explain the best historical context for this. And once again, true to form, and this is so unfortunate, but true to form, the Mormons are misreading the evidence of the execration texts. Oh, we've got Radio Free Mormon here right now, so he can tell you about the Rittner materials. This changes nothing for how modern Egyptologists interpret the papyrus of facsimile number one, though. Nothing has changed because John Gee is making a desperate attempt to upset Egyptology and introduce chaos wherein anything can be applied to anything simply by finding examples that one wants to plug into another set of ideas for the sole purpose of defending Joseph Smith's false claims. Now, you know, here's here's uh, Paul Osborne zeroing right in, blam, and hitting you right on the nose. Boink. Yeah, he's got this one. And then Pearl Great Price Central says other Egyptologists have already drawn parallels between facsimile number one and the Dendera Temple lion couch scenes. But as John Gee elaborated, there is a clear connection with sacrifice and ritual violence in these scenes in the Dendera texts. The word for the lion couch is either homophonous or identical with the word abattoir, the slaughterhouse, as well as a term of offerings. This is reinforced in the inscriptions surrounding the lion couch scenes. And when Robert Rittner was asked about this, he simply said, not a chance. Guy has been known to misread the Egyptian when it conveniently helps save Joseph Smith, Rittner doesn't fall for this kind of chicancery and obfuscation. Nope. No point, John Gee. No point, Pearl Great Price Central. 
So uh, the, this is not a ritual murder scene is the point. And there is, I, sincerely, there truly is no modern Egyptologist who will agree with that interpretation. You notice where John Gee publishes all this stuff? Yeah, in Dan Peterson's Interpreter. Right. He can't get this tripe published in the Journal of Egyptian Archaeology because the actual peer review will demonstrate to him, historically, you're simply out to lunch, John Gee. And as a professional Egyptologist of 30 plus years, you really should begin to understand that. What the hell is the holdup? Right. And so he doesn't want to get that kind of critique. And so he will not turn in his Mormonizing of Egyptology into any actual valid journal. He goes to the Mormon invented ones. And it, it just doesn't fool any of us anymore. So it probably never did to a lot of you. So anyway, I have been going on for an hour and a half. And it is Mother's Day, and it is Mother's Day night, and I thank you for all of your support, your love. Once again, let me say, Tuesday night, 6 p.m., Mormon Stories, I'll be on there. We have some fantastic graphics that you've never seen the likes of before. Gerardo and I worked for five hours on materials earlier today, and then we both went and celebrated Mom's Day with our moms. So I promise you don't want to miss the Mormon stories on Tuesday. Please come and have some fun with us. It begins at 5 o'clock Mountain, and we are going to have a ball. It's going to be very, very enjoyable. So. I'm going to sign off for right now, you guys, and you guys have a good evening. Thank you for showing up, and I will catch you next Sunday uh, for more information, and I will see you guys Tuesday, and don't forget Wednesday, Mormonism Live. Of course, you're not going to forget that, and I may throw a couple of surprise live backyard professors at you on a Thursday again, or a Friday. Friday, everybody's out having fun. Thursday, I had a decent audience, so we shall see. So anyway, thank you, you guys. I appreciate all of you. I'm going to sign off and let you go, and enjoy the rest of your Mother's Day. Hasta la vista, friends, ladies, and gentlemen. Have a great night.